Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Pinak Srikande, a director at Health Quad. Dr. Pinak, thank you so much for doing this today. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm absolutely fine, uh, Michael, and thanks for having invited me on this podcast. It's a real pleasure to join you here. The pleasure is all mine, and I will thank you online as well for making the end of my week. This is just the best way to end my week. I'm relaxed, it's all cool, and it's great to have you here. Before we get to the main part of our conversation, maybe you can give our listeners a little bit of your background for some context before we jump in. Sure. So, Michael, I've... I've been a practicing doctor for almost 20 years. I'm a critical care physician, so I deal with life and death situations. On I dealt with life and death situations almost on a daily basis for almost 20 years. I was the director of critical care at the Fortis group of hospitals in Delhi. As you would be aware, Fortis is one of the largest healthcare uh, groups in India with more than 35 hospitals across the country. But I was heading three of their large facilities in Delhi for the for critical care, managing about 150 critical care beds, a team of more than 450 doctors, nurses, and technicians. And I did that for about 10 years. Prior to that, I was at, at another large hospital in Mumbai called Leelavati Hospital, again, and in the Department of Critical Care. I've done my MD from the Armed Forces Medical College, one of the most prestigious medical colleges in, in India. And, uh, and then my super speciality in critical care from the national board. And at Fortis, uh, there was an interesting journey that we went through. So we were, we were not only managing these critical care beds, we were also the pioneers of something called as the EICU in the country and probably in this part of the world, if, I'm, uh, if I was to say so. The EICU was a unique program where we connected to the most remotest ICUs in uh, North India, Bangladesh, and Nepal who had very little access to quality critical care and power and expertise. And many of their devices were plugged into our command center and we had a live stream, video stream that was coming in from these centers into our command center. And we were providing real-time critical care to doctors who were managing patients in these ICUs. And I think we managed about 650 critical care beds across about 15 locations. So that's a brief about my background. I want to get back to the EICU in a second because it's fascinating, but I want to understand why. Here's a bunch of things, right? So doctoring itself just at the core is just hard work. Yeah. No, no matter what type of doctor you are, it's just hard work. But critical care is like the tip of the spear, right? Because it's, it's in the name. It's critical care. If something bad goes wrong for like a general practice, practitioner, it could be terrible, but it's not at that tip of the spear. And it's nothing, it's not disparaging for that, but like it's critical. If something goes wrong, that person could die. What drives you at a young age to say, I want to be at the tip of that spear? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And Michael, that's a very interesting question because, you know, as, as doctors, there are always two ambitions. You know, you need to do something which is going to make a difference and you want to be at the cutting edge of technology. And I think critical care in, in a way kind of fulfills both these aspects. You know, here you're always in a situation where you're on the edge, uh, your patients are on the edge, and, uh, and it's important that you, in your sound mind and, and wisdom, make the right decisions to try and tip the balance towards life. And I think that's, that's what the adrenaline surge is all about, and that's what gives you a kick. 
it is kind of exciting, right? Absolutely. It's bungee jumping. Yeah, true. Do you come from a family of doctors? Yes, I do. I do. Though, uh, you know, my, my parents, uh, my mother, well, my father and my grandfathers were doctors. Right. But uh, unfortunately, I lost them at a very young age. So, I'm sorry. Uh, so uh, I have been uh, brought up in the family of doctors, but never seen them really working as such. I understand. But I, I have to presume that there's this feeling not of responsibility, but of just like, that's something I want to pass down from generation to generation. And, you know, my father did it. My grandfather did it. Hopefully my sons and my daughters will do it as well kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's something which is so, uh, you know, as you mentioned, it's kind of DNA-ish. A little if bit, I was right? To say that. Yeah. But yes, there is this whole thought process that, you know, this is, this is what our family stands for. Yeah. It's a great thing to stand for. I want to share a story with you. I have a brother who's a year and a half younger than I am. He's a neurosurgeon. When he was going through his residency in Atlanta, I went down to visit him. If you saw the two of us standing next to each other, we don't look alike, but we resemble each other enough that if I walked into the hospital, the people that were there sometimes would think that I was him. And I'll never forget this experience I had when I walked into the hospital one day. I was there visiting him, and an older woman came over to me and thanked me for saving her grandson's life. I couldn't absolutely. say I wasn't my brother. Do you, you understand the point though, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I can, I can relate to that incident very well. Yeah. And it was weird for me because I hadn't done anything, but I'm not going to take that feeling away, right? Because absolutely. that's the reverse of what you have. It's this thanks for, thank you for being there at the tip of the spear and thanks for saving my family's life. It's just kind of cool, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I want to understand the genesis of this EICU. I presume the E is like electronic. Yes. Can I understand yes. better exactly how this works though, right? Because part of the problem with the world in which we live is that in places where there's great population density and also, you know, high GDP per capita wealth, the access to medical care is relatively straightforward. Relatively, yeah, it's not perfect, but it's relatively straightforward. But the further you get away from those capital centers and those concentrated populations, the further away you get from actually high quality medical care. Right, so if you're deep into the countryside, in a third tier city or a suburb of a third tier city, the likelihood you can get great medical care is just lower by definition, right? Absolutely. What's the like? How does this EICU work, right? Because ICU feels to a layperson like you kind of have to be there and touching it, right? So how does it work? Yeah. So I think uh, here is the uh, you know the. The key here is that you know there are critical care patient patients all over the country. Absolutely, and and there will be uh, these tier three and tier four uh, city hospitals, which will continue to have patients coming in, who are very difficult to either transport to the to the major centers or who can't afford being transported to the major centers. Right. And our thought at that time when we started off is that one should not die because of lack of quality care. I think that was the that was the thought when we started. Uh, this is way back in two, 2011, when uh, these uh, these things were really at that point in time not even thought of. Right. What we what we realized is that you know you can put up equipment in some of these centers. You can probably have the basic kind of manpower, but the expertise is missing. Yeah. And what we tried to do is that you know because there was equipment which was compatible for data sourcing. 
we were able to extract data from these equipments and and channelize them back into our data uh, our command center and at the same time we were also able to get live video stream of those patients coming into the command center now it may not be the perfect solution but this is where it is these people would have absolutely no access to quality care we have now tried to bridge this with technology using technology as a bridge to get them quality care so that was the that was in a sense the the, the kind of base that we wanted to get get to and were you managing the sort of caregivers and the doctors and nurses that were there through a process so essentially like getting a video feed of what's happening there i don't understand how the data was gathered but i'm really curious about how that happens but it's almost like real time. You're seeing this data come in. You're yes. saying, okay, do this, do that. Look at this, test that, fix that kind of thing and helping them through it. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. This Go was ahead. this was exactly what was being done. Live video streaming, live looking at the patient, the, the monitors. Based on those monitors, it, uh, of course, there was exchange of data, both electronically as well as verbally. But based on the inputs, then you ask the doctors at that end or the nursing staff at that end, to make the necessary changes in either settings, medications, or uh, the therapies in, in it by themselves to bring about change. I want to use a simple measurement that most people understand, a heart rate, right? It's e yeah. And it's also easy to measure, right? Like I can measure my heart yeah. rate on my phone. Yeah, yeah. But are you suggesting then that something like that was connected to somebody so you could measure their heart rate and that that data was getting sent to you automatically over a wire that you could then see on a machine in front of you? Yes, Along with yes. other data, I presume, and then you could help make decisions yes. using that. So the, they were connected to that to their monitors. Right. Uh, these are patient monitors, which uh, which are able to capture data data points like heart rate, blood pressure, oxygen saturation levels, respiratory rates, temperature. All of that can be measured by that monitor. But we were extracting data from that monitor, and we are seeing them real time in our in our command center. And were you able to real? Were you able to analyze that data in real time? Let me tell you what I'm thinking in my head, right? Just so you can understand. And I don't want to equate the things because it feels mean. But in the late '90s, in the mid to late '90s, we started taking wires and splicing them and getting real time trading data from exchanges, futures exchanges, stock exchanges, and stuff like that. Yeah. We could put them into spreadsheets and then start analyzing them in real time and make trading decisions based on that data. The other thing we could do is we could then backtest the data that we had gathered and then use it to make decisions about the real-time data that we were getting. And it seems to me that if you could combine all of the data that you had on the medical side in the same way, backtest the old data, and come up with some types of conclusions, not perfect, but good enough, and then analyze that in real time and say, oh, this thing is definitely going to end up as that thing. Is that what you were doing as well? Absolutely. Wow. Go You're ahead. Right. So, Michael, that, that's exactly the point. One, of course, there was a live data stream that was coming in. So all that was getting captured in uh, in the EMR sheets at our end. Right. And then we were looking at trends and, uh, and analyzing those trends to make uh, decisions which would change the outcomes for patients. So this is a paradigm change in the way that medical care is given, particularly remotely. When you, I presume you were involved in proposing this as a solution to access to medical care, let's just say remotely. When you first proposed this to people in the big city, were they like, okay, you're insane, like this is never going to work? Or were they just like, sure, please go ahead, just install the stuff, this is definitely good? 
So I think, uh, you know, we, we found uh, great support from uh, the owner of the chain, so uh, of hospital. So he was our biggest proponent. In fact, uh, he was the one who encouraged us to uh, do this because uh, when we took it to him, obviously people at, at, at levels below him obviously had the skepticism that you talked about. Right. But uh, he was one who was futuristic in his thought process. And he, he thought that, you know, if we are able to demonstrate this, it could be a game changer. Yeah, it sounds like it was. I want to talk about changing the game with technology. In 2011, which doesn't feel like that long ago to you and me, to the technology, it feels like two or three generations ago. Absolutely. Can you talk about just what's changed at scale from the tech implementation standpoint and the difference that it's made over time as that tech has changed? Yeah, yeah, surely. I think uh, the biggest change was that uh, first and foremost, connected devices were limited. So when, when you had to get data output from some of these devices, it was difficult to integrate them uh, or, or rather get output out of these devices because they were not compliant. So that was one big challenge. Now, more and more devices are compliant and you can actually extract data from many of them. The second part was that even if they were compliant, the large device manufacturers were reluctant for us to get data from them. And we had to actually explain to them that this is for a certain reason. They used to think that we are hacking into their systems, which was certainly not the case. <laughs> Go the ahead. Third, the third, of course, was the cost of data. And the fact that today we have broadbands, which can, which can do far more than what we were doing at that time, because we were laying down dedicated uh, data lines at that point. In were time you really? To, to get data from all of these. And, and at that time, it was like, Two Gbps per minute, right? Which was like crazy. Yeah. I mean, that that uh, with a dedicated data line, and I'm talking about this today, where we are on the broadband, uh, you can have exponentially uh, more data coming in. I want to go back to the to the people that actually owned the hospitals. Yeah. So you, when you first proposed it, they're a little bit more visionary than maybe the people that were below them, and they said, "Hey, this is a great idea." As it progressed over time, was this feeling? Amongst the people that were involved doing this, like, wait a second, we may actually be changing the way medical care is delivered, not, not just here, but in places we hadn't even considered yet. Yeah, so I, I guess it was a very slow process at that time. Uh, you know, it was, it was uh, not uh, accepted enough till actually the COVID hit. Really? And once once COVID hit, it, it was a totally different paradigm shift in the in the way uh, people thought about all of this. It was it was very slow. We were converting one person at a time, maybe at that, till that time. I understand. And was there were there any surprise places where now because this is such a force multiplier, right? Those are your words. Are there places now where you can put? I don't want to say full scale hospitals because in a way they're great, but not necessary in this case where you can put things now because of the connectivity, that the devices are connected, that the bandwidth is higher, and that data storage is cheaper, now you can put facilities in places where you may not have been able to serve people before? Certainly. So I'll, I'll give you a very classic example. Uh, you know, uh, we, we were serving uh, hospitals in Bangladesh. And now this was, a, at that point of time, it was a unique challenge because we were crossing international boundaries yeah. uh, with data cables. 
at that point in time, if something happened to the data links uh, on the international boundary, and we have had those situations at least twice in our in our uh, work with them for six years, at least twice that we had uh, you know data cables going down in right. no man's land. It was a terrible task to get those cables up and running. Well, because now you're dealing with two with two different absolutely yeah authorities, right? Yeah, two different service providers, two different authorities, and to, and then requesting people to get into the no man's land. Yeah, really fascinating. And is there, are there problems with getting data from one country to another country just to begin with? And, and I'll tell you why. Again, back to the trading thing. When I first joined Goldman Sachs in Hong Kong, when I moved there to kind of build a business, one of the businesses we had it was in Korea, but the servers were in Hong Kong at the time. We had to move them to Korea because they wanted to protect their own country's data. This is common for countries globally. India does this, obviously. The U.S. does it. Every country does this. Were there issues initially getting that information from Bangladesh into India then to be able to analyze that data and provide the care? Yes and no. For for the simple reason, I don't think people had that evolved thinking about data by that uh, in that in that era. Got it. About, okay. In fact, uh, you know, this was discussed with the hospitals whom we were working with. Right. And we it, it was actually, uh, you know, their responsibility to uh, get the permissions necessary. But you will be surprised that uh, when they went to talk to uh, talk to the authorities there, uh, the authorities did not even understand what we were talking about. Right. You know, I told you this story earlier that when I walked into the hospital when I was visiting my brother, that this old woman came over to me and thanked me for saving her grandson's life. I have to presume that in these third tier cities anywhere in the world that most people feel like if there's a critical issue that they're kind of out of luck, right? Just because they feel so far away from where proper and modern medical care can be given. Was there this sense of magic in the patients, you know what I mean? Where they would say like, wait a second, we survived that, that's not possible kind of thing, you know what I mean? Yes, yes, and that 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 used to happen, you know, in the middle of the night, you had a ventilator alarming off and alarming all the patients around. And, and the nurse at that point in time used to be really out of her wits trying to understand what was wrong. Right. And uh, you had this constant communication channel. And 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 uh, she used to, you know, panic at that time in that center there. Sure. And, and that would obviously be uh, noticed by the relatives of the patient. These, these ICUs are not the very sophisticated in terms of re access control and all of that. So, you know, you have uh, the relatives right there. Right. Uh, and, 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 and suddenly you have this call going there and saying, please do this right now. And she does that. And suddenly, you know, things settle down. The patient is quieting and you realize that and the, and they're looking out of, uh, you can see those uh, people around looking out of the blue to understand what happened just, you know, and where did this phone call came from, uh, come from and right. what, how did this change? So it was, it used to be very, very fascinating. And we used to see that live, you know, because it was, it was coming live stream. It must seem like magic. My grandfather was, when he was much older, was, I guess, summering somewhere in the Blue Mountains. I can't remember where, maybe in Virginia. I honestly don't remember where. And he had a heart attack and he was airlifted to 
a hospital, I want to say in either North Carolina or South Carolina. I honestly don't remember. And I went down from New York to visit him because I was really afraid he was going to die. But I remember being in his hospital room. So it's not an ICU per se, but I remember being in his room. And obviously, he was hooked up to all this machinery and just so fearful that something would happen on the machine. This is what you're describing that I didn't understand. And all you want to do is like press that button to get the nurse or the caregiver to come in to fix it. But now you're remote. So again, it just must have felt like some, you know, super powerful being from somewhere else just going, do this, do that, do this, do that. And then everything stabilizes and everyone's like, <sighs> absolutely. That's, that's exactly how it used to work. Wow. And this also must make the doctors like you and the other doctors that are performing these operations, not operations, but these, these exercises just feel so much better because you can feel the yeah. fear in the families. I want to talk now about Health Quad because we haven't even mentioned what it is and what it does. Can you just give us a sense of like, how would you describe what Health Quad is? So uh, while at uh, Fortis, uh, you know, what we were realizing is that you can call me a cynic, but uh, that's what, that that's how, you know, things change. So uh, unless and until you're cynical about things, uh, things don't change. Right. At Fortis, Fortis was uh, was catering, though we were doing this EICU program, but Fortis was actually catering to the three or 4% most affluent people of India. I understand. Uh, in terms of their affordability to care, Fortis was, uh, and most people would not afford care at Fortis hospitals. Understood. Also, uh, the fact that, you know, after a certain point in time, there is a kind of you know feeling that you have as as the director of the critical care service that you know most patients coming into your ICUs are 86 years old and you are just helping them to reach 87 maybe 88 I understand and and you know what I mean I, yeah. I'm not I'm not saying that that's wrong or that's right no I get I'm it I'm just saying that you're not making the difference to the people who matter and there is a huge population of people who act at a much younger and much more productive ages of their lives right. have absolutely no access to healthcare. Right. This is not only a problem with India, it is a problem across the globe. Everywhere. And all the low and middle income countries suffer from that challenge. Right. The, the idea of Health Quad was to try and see if we could uh, set up a healthcare transformation fund, which was leveraging technology to make healthcare affordable accessible and improve the quality of care. Okay. And that was the whole genesis of Health Quad. When did that start? It started in 2016. Okay, that's a while ago as well. Yes. And can you talk about like what the progress is and what Health Quad has been trying to do, maybe some of the investments that you've made? And is this a, an LPGP fund? I'm sorry, I should say a GPLP fund. So you're a general partner, but there are people that invest in the fund and then you invest in the companies? Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's a GPLP structure. There's a GP uh, which has formed this uh, fund. It's regulated under the Indian AIF Category 2 rules uh, of uh, the Securities and Exchange Board of India. And what we did was we, you know, we were testing waters at that time. We really see the at that at that point in time, the whole focus of healthcare investments in India was go big, invest in hospitals, diagnostic chains. Yep. yep. Pharma companies, you know, that was the focus. And at that point in time, there was a lot of skepticism around the fact that whether technology is going to be such a game changer in the future. Everybody had, uh, you know, there were a lot of companies that were mushrooming that were uh, leveraging technology, but most had at best a pilot or 
a little more than a pilot in in place so there was in terms of traction it was not such a a big play at that point in time uh what we we decided to function, focus on and and hence we raised a very small fund it was a 13 million dollar fund we ended up investing 35 million dollars but that's that's because as we started investing more and more people gained confidence right. in those models and right. hence we were able to you know kind of uh, invest more our thesis was that we were leveraging technology to solve for these three fundamental challenges accessibility affordability and quality of care and we re- realized that you know if we were to make an impact only there were two ways we can make an impact one is we start bottoms up where we we invest in models which were really targeting the most most difficult sections of society if i was to say to serve, in terms yeah. of their uh, in in terms of their affordability or in terms of their accessibility right. and then work our way up towards the the top tiers now that is one aspect and then the other aspect is how we start start with the, the top tier populations but we make you know continuous improvements in technology to make it more and more affordable to reach the the lower tiers and i think with these two approaches that is how we started looking at companies and if there were models which could help in either of those two ways we would invest in them so back in 2016 when you started and it's a kind of a weird question but were there companies already that existed you said some of them had pilots but were there enough companies there that were just waiting for people to notice that they were trying to solve this problem or did the existence of the fund itself encourage people then to take the risk to then build those companies in which you could invest or was it more like a combination of both of, you know what i mean a combination of yeah. both of those things so i think it was a combination of both of those things uh, so we were the first kind of health tech focused fund so we there were many generalist funds who also had a health tech arm right which were trying to trying to invest into such companies so the ecosystem was very nascent at that point in time it was just starting to you know build out i would not say that there were no companies there obviously there was a pool of about 6 700 companies which were trying to you know wade wade into the health tech waters but uh, you know none of none of them had shown scale or none of them had shown the real proof of the pudding right you made an interesting point and i just want to be really explicit about this right i believe you have to attack this from both sides Yeah. If you take the top 3% of wealthiest people that are getting sick, you can use that money then to develop very effective like very sophisticated machinery and equipment to be able to serve them. That's great, right? Because they can afford to pay for it, the big hospitals, the big clinics can afford to pay for it. But on the flip side, you have to then be able to take that technology and I'm just going to use miniaturization as an example, right? But miniaturize it so that then it becomes super affordable so that then the lower end of the spectrum can also be served. and somewhere in the middle you'll meet so that then everybody can get served does that make sense absolutely you're spot on michael yeah and so have you raised a second fund and a third fund and maybe how can you characterize like what the successes have been in the 6 years now that you've been running health quad so uh, the second we've raised a second fund we've already done an interim close of about 150 million dollars <laughs> and we expect to be around 200-250 million by the end of the fund i mean by the uh, end of fund closing which is in march of this year and you'll be surprised you know we 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 started off with an expectation of a 75 million dollar fund right and our first close was at 68 million so we said okay we'll go to 120 million and we had such overwhelming interest that we had to take it to 150 million and at 150 million now we have 
uh, you know, request to take it to two, 250, uh, we have to put a stop at around 200 because uh, then <laughs> it just becomes too tempting after that. But why was there so, why was there so much interest? I, I guess there are really two questions there. Why did the team think, okay, we'll do, I'm going to use 70 as a proxy for 68 because it's the same number, right? But why was there this idea like we'll stop at 70, but there's this pent-up demand for this, right? W where's all this Absolutely. demand coming from and why? So I think, uh, you know, there is uh, health tech has been, uh, you know, a sector which did not get the same attention as a fintech in India. Yeah, exactly. Or or edtech now that you've seen that health tech has has kind of lagged behind fintech in its uh, in its ability to draw capital the reason for that is that uh, you know people were not seeing scales in health tech right now what changed was the pandemic the pandemic actually crunched about 4 years into 6 months and uh, and suddenly people realized that uh, you know technology is the force multi multiplier right Technology can reach people where uh, even without physical, uh, you know, barriers or uh, any uh, manpower challenges, you know, you use technology and you can reach the right audience. So that's what, uh, you know, drove the entire interest in health technology. But I think what also did help was the fact that we had demonstrated from our first fund that companies could scale. Right. What have you, because you're a doctor, right? <laughs> and that's a great thing, but like you weren't trained to be an investor, which is a completely different world. Yes. What kind of things have you learned from 2016 in the first fund, which was 30 to 35 million, now to be running a fund that's, I don't know, 200 to 250 million? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think a couple of things that we learned certainly is that, you know, one is the market has to be really large for the, for the product. Has to be. Uh, you you can't uh, play on on a small market. Second uh, point that we learned was the promoter team. I think the passion and the uh, and the enthusiasm of building a large business has to be promoter driven. Uh, and we really really uh, you know go into the details of of all of that uh, before we invest. So that passion needs to be really demonstrated by the the founders because I think. Great businesses are built by founders. Yeah, agreed. And and lastly, uh, lastly, you know, we took some early bets, very early bets in our first fund, and we realized that you know uh, those companies were not ready to receive our uh, kind of ecosystem or our help at that point in time because they were just, I mean, there was just a big gap between what we were bringing to the table and what they want to take out of the table. Yep. And and hence we realized, you know, there there needs to be a certain uh, you know, at least traction, whether it's uh, revenue traction, whether it's a, it's a market adoption traction that needs to be in place before we start looking at it from an investment perspective. It's really interesting. Once you, again, gather all this data and get all this experience, the market starts to look very different to you, right? And, I, and again, there are equivalencies everywhere. Like the way you looked at your 100th critical care patient was different than the way you looked at your first one because... Absolutely. You know what I mean, right? I, 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 I still remember my first critical care, uh, care really? patient. I was, I was shitting bricks. You know, yeah, I was, was going to say you were one. scared, right? What do I do? Yeah. Yeah. It can get pretty scary. Are there, is any of this transferable outside? Because you mentioned before, right? Bangladesh, Nepal, and Northern India. I'm presuming you're still investing in those geographies. 
But you said before, you know, Africa, the, most of the continent of Africa, Africa is going to have this problem. Anywhere where there are emerging market economies where there's lack of access to, you know, what are the words used? Where medical care is not accessible, it's not affordable, and it's not quality, right? Because you can have medical care accessible, but it could be terrible. Absolutely. You have to solve for all three of these things. Are there other places where you can then implement this model or at least partner with people that are trying to build the same thing and at least educate them about what you've learned over time? Yeah, so Michael, uh, though this is an India-focused fund, yep. our in investments are in India. But what we believe is that the companies that we are investing in right now have applications or the products and services of those companies have applications across the lower and mid middle income countries because the healthcare challenges remain the same. Yeah, They are not different. But I would go one step even further to say that they could actually also be applicable to the most developed nations, including the US, because yeah. cost of healthcare at 18% of GDP is non-sustainable. It's, it's, it's actually, I was hoping you'd say nonsense, but yeah, non-sustainable and nonsense. Please go ahead. Yeah. So, so I, all of uh, the companies that we are looking at are, are looking to either or have already done so or are looking to expand into new geographies outside India because those models have have place across the globe. I'll give you a very small example. We, we invested in a company called Neurosynaptic Communications. It basically, uh, you know, if I was to just describe you that you had about 10 point of care diagnostic devices which are Bluetooth enabled and they, they measure physiological data in a suitcase along with 30 point of care tests that you can do anywhere and take it into the most remotest part of the country or in the remotest part of Africa where you get a 2G signal right. and you will be able to actually have a full-fledged video consultation on the platform because it is compatible for a 2G consultation. Yeah, And the data from these devices can be uploaded onto the onto the cloud and it can be viewed remotely by a physician from anywhere across the globe. Right. So the company is already making its presence felt in Panama, in Peru, in Senegal, and across uh, across Philippines, Vietnam. So it ha it it already has a, a you know wide distribution uh, that we're looking at. That's the real paradigm shift in the way medical care and critical care is just going to be the things you said accessible, affordable and high quality. Look, I want to let you go, but I want to also have the opportunity to talk to the founders of some of these companies in which you've invested, because it's the best way for me, but also for other people to learn about some of these changes that are taking place in the healthcare field. I mean, to be fair, you hear all this stuff about, you know, fintech and agritech and stuff like that. But, yeah. you know, health is something we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, and you know, you can die from it, basically. I'd just love to have more conversations about this, if you don't mind. Dr. Pinak Shrikande, a director at Health Quad. This was awesome. Thank you so much for doing this today. It was my pleasure, Michael, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to do so. Thank you. <laughs>